Uh, hey everybody, it's Red Flag Poetry's podcast, Use Your Words. I'm Wes McMasters, one of the editors, sitting with Matt, Anthony, and Mary. Uh, Matt is one of our editors and our Poetry Express editor. Uh, Mary and Anthony just joined the team. Anthony is our intern and Mary is our web intern. And we have on the phone AJ Schmitz, who is the author of Red Flag's first ever chapbook, that we actually assembled by hand in Peter's basement. Peter's not with us today. He's raising a newborn child. But um, the whole reason we bought a saddle saddle stapler. It is, yeah. We bought we bought a saddle stapler to make to make AJ's chapbook ritual Delo predictable, which sold out I think that week, and um, that we put into second edition pretty quickly after. So AJ, um, we thought that we'd have you um, read a poem that. Seems to suit all of us. We've known AJ for a long time, so um, there's a good poem that we'd like to talk about first. Uh, AJ, if you would read that for us. Hi, uh, and thanks for having me. And uh, I will be reading Be Drunk by Charles Baudelaire. You have to always be drunk. That's all there is to it. It's the only way. So as not to feel the horrible burden of time that breaks your back and bends you to the earth, you have to be continually drunk. But on what? Wine, poetry, or virtue? As you wish, but be drunk. And if sometimes on the steps of a palace or the green grass of a ditch, in the mournful solitude of your room, you wake again, drunkenness already diminishing or gone as ask the wind. The wave, the star, the bird, the clock, everything that is flying, everything that is groaning, everything that is rolling, everything that is singing, everything that is speaking. Ask what time it is, and wind, wave, star, bird, clock will answer you. It's time to be drunk so as not to be martyred slaves of time. Be drunk, be continually drunk on wine, on poetry, or on virtue as you wish. Awesome. <laughs> I miss hearing you read it. <laughs> <laughs> I miss reading in front of people. <laughs> you know, this reminds me a little bit of when you uh, still lived around here and we were all able to get uh, beer together and we would be standing on tables and reading from uh, the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock. And... That's my favorite poem. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. made fifty dollars, and I felt like that was one of the things that that really helped us. We we were in a small community in Indiana, Pennsylvania, yeah. and and we are very distinct looking people, and we did something, and we were constantly out, and so to be able to be at H. P. Culpepper's or at Spaghetti Benders or 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 you know Brunzies or whatever, and to get up and start reading poetry. It wasn't out of the ordinary, which made me feel so incredibly at home. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't out of the ordinary for us, but it was highly unorthodox for this area, I would say. <laughs> yeah, which I think is, it's, you know, it's a college town, and I know that you guys are all from the area, and and the fact is, it is unorthodox for the town, but we kind of normalized it in a manner of speaking. We had a community presence around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And people still people still ask me where AJ is when I walk into certain places in this town. They'll they'll ask yeah. about him. 
So that makes me feel happy. <laughs> speaking speaking of the community that kind of led to, uh, I mean, so we're talking about Lit Night, right? Um, which is an open mic poetry night that we do in Indiana, PA. But AJ AJ and I hosted together for a while, and, and Matt and Matt and Pete off and on. But AJ, am I correct to say that Ritual De La Predictable came from your experiences there, um, at least yeah. in part? Um. Only a couple of poems were written for the chapbook. Um, almost everything that came out in the book actually grew out of immediate, spontaneous sort of poetry that occurred at lit night or that was worked on, you know, when we would come home from a day of teaching or something like that and, or, or after a night of drinking. Uh, you know, poems would spring, but then they would get read and reworked at lit night. And that was, it was a breeding ground, at least for my work. Uh, it allowed, it allowed me to, to really kind of develop things to see how they landed audibly so that, you know, other people can hear it. I can hear it. I can deliver it. If it tripped up my, you know, my reading, then I'd say, fuck it. And I would, you know, if it tripped me up, then it was like, okay, I need to work on that or I need to do this mm-hmm. because it was the, the, you know, the reading of poetry helps really kind of draft a lot of those poems. I feel like, and, and not, I mean, to take it back a step, that you're almost referring to a similar feeling that Baudelaire is talking about in this poem with the being drunk with poetry. And not only were we drunk with poetry at nights, we were often intoxicated on everything else that we could find as well but certainly virtue as well that's yeah, one certainly word. If, virtue. There is, if there is a word to describe all of us it is virtuous yeah drunk on yeah. wine drunk on poetry what ha- i think i think we all lived in the what have you mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah and, and it's true and i think so too but the interesting thing about that baudelaire poem it's it's what is known as a, a fouilleton and i don't speak french but i i know um it was a, a brand of poetry that used to be in newspapers. It was basically prosaic. It wasn't necessarily in verse. And what it was was common, just kind of conversational. It replied to or reinforced editorials that occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, that usually it was it was printed adjacent to or opposite. And and it was something that it was. And I think that you guys can agree with this here. And I think maybe that's where you're going with it. Other than the fact that I've actually read that poem at lit night, um, it, it was one of those things that it brought poetry to commuters, people who would be sitting in a coach or in an omnibus or or later on in the century, you know, subways, trains, people who didn't usually get it. So they were getting their poetry um, the same place that they got their news, and it became periodicalized and mm-hmm. and something that people really started to 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 take in as part of their everyday and i think that is exactly what we did with lit night yeah. and i think what we then kind of spilled over into the various restaurants and bars and and the and the uh you know the walkways and the stairs going up to the library the the hallowed steps in front of leonard hall before they tore it down that it was it was a thing that people walking by would stop and pay attention to what we were saying because those are the guys from Lit Night. Yeah. We think we made it accessible, similar to what they did, what you're talking about with Baudelaire's work. And I think so. Yeah. 
And I, I mean, so interestingly too, I don't know much about Baudelaire aside from that he was obsessed with Poe, and and Poe also I think first kind of embodied that. You know, Poe is at the at the cutting edge of periodical literature, and and you know, and periodicals, you know, and so for Poe, periodicals were just growing. Um, the number of periodicals had multiplied by something like five hundred times from Poe's birth to uh, when he was writing at his peak, and and so he had to adjust to that kind of rush and i think that he was one of the people who who kind of established that kind of reading practice that you're talking about and then baudelaire you know could could build off of that and i think that probably i think baudelaire um had seances with poe if i'm not mistaken um is that, or is that a south park episode i think that's a south park episode like that if i'm not mistaken <laughs> yeah. Too. yeah yeah because he was the one who, who translated poe he's right, the one right. who, who literally is, is handedly responsible for for popularizing him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you continue and that... don't let's forget that, that Baudelaire, you know, in his decadence, used to walk up and down the streets of Paris, but pre-Hausman, uh, you know, where it was still sketchy and dirty, it was like New York in the 70s. <laughs> and he, he was wearing he was wearing oversized cloaks, he was very flamboyant, he used to wear his hair in a green mohawk, he was punk rock before punk rock was a thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's... It, Again, it's the avant-garde, but what it mm-hmm. is 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 it's accessibility. Yeah. It was no longer this this you know these Parnassian poets these these sort of things where it's like well you have to have an education to appreciate it. He's talking about a woman walking by him who is who is flashing her her ankles. You know, in an all-black outfit, she looks sad, but what she's doing is she's tantalizing in her mourning. You know, it's like, this is things that we all do. We pass this person every single day. Well, and that, that kind of legacy of accessibility continues on. I mean, not just Poe and Baudelaire. Then we've got, I mean, if I can bring in my own work, Gwendolyn Brooks started publishing with Broadside Press, and she dropped Harper and Rowe because she didn't want to have that image of herself as being some sort of highfalutin poet that no one could access. So she started to publish with Broadside and on Broadsides and which distributing, was small. which was small, and distributing it to the people and trying to make it accessible. And I think what we did with Lit Night was kind of just a continuation of that legacy. I, I would I would certainly say that Red Flag Poetry is a direct descendant of Poe, mm-hmm. Baudelaire, and Gwendolyn Brooks, yeah. and its embodiment started with Ritual Delo Predictable by mm-hmm. by you, AJ. Do you, uh, can we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I would say, too, you know, the whole idea of this actually, I mean, Red Flag was, was what? The, the, uh, It was originally just, just right? postcard project, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, I believe, uh, I put together a panel at the, uh, the English graduate organization's, uh, conference one uh, just just in early 2016 and pete put together a chapbook i don't know he's like prince in that it's like he's writes a song a day you know pete yeah. like did like a poem a day mm-hmm. and he put this thing together for this, this little panel that actually considering that it was at the end of the day on a saturday was well attended and um and i think a lot of that had to do with lit night um but not to toot my own horn, but Pete came up with the how easy is it to make a chapbook, and then, like, literally, that was Saturday, Monday, I get a, a phone call from him, and he's like, hey, we want you to do a chapbook. I had poems because of Lit Night. He knew how to make a chapbook, and, and that was it. 
I forgot that that was the origin story to, to Ritual Daily Predictable, in all honesty. I did, too. Um, is your... So, and actually, funny. Uh, so the first poem, the first poem, at least in the second edition, is uh, 32, What's My Age Again? Which I remember, uh, I remember you reading that was, it was your 32nd birthday, um, uh-huh. which we celebrated together. And I remember you reading that poem and writing that poem on that occasion. And so, I mean, Lit Night, interestingly for us and, and probably for Mary and Anthony too, I think Lit Night is, so we talk about occasional poetry, poetry on, on mm-hmm. occasion. Lit Night has become an occasion for, I think, most of us. Um, yeah, that we, the tradition at this point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I remember, um, talking to Matt and, and getting a phone call from Matt. He's like, I'm writing a poem for tonight, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it became this, this kind of, this kind of, uh, you know, a spurring on a, mm-hmm. a, in an occasion that, that forced us to have to do something that it, it was like, okay, we gotta, you know, you know, we gotta, we gotta dress in our best dude outfit. We gotta, you know, make sure that we look right, or at least that we look poetic. And then we have to make sure that we come correct with our, with our poetry because we don't know if we have to fill up some time. And it got to a point, and I think that you would all agree, it got to a point where, we ceased having to fill time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The still, occasion, still, the occasion be for us then became an occasion for so many other people, and and it became cathartic too because it wasn't necessarily everybody reading, a, you know, a Baudelaire poem or a you know, you know, what's cutting edge, you know, like a Bukowski poem. Oh, he says fuck and he talks about sex and all that stuff. It was. Well, all I know is is that midnight was just simply a cathartic experience. It was it was cheap beer, better than cheap therapy. You know how many people showed up with a jug of wine? Literally one of those those Rossi <laughs> jugs of wine. Yes. And and halfway through, first of all, sharing was involved, not just of poetry but also of their wine. So Passing that was the always intro. great. Yeah. But um. But yeah, you know, that that was just kind of the skis, was, you know, being able to share and, and making it real. Well, so let's uh, let's take a listen to, uh, from the book release party for Ritual Daylo Predictable, let's listen to 32, What's My Age Again? And the first poem is called 32. Obviously, it was written when I turned 32. Two years ago this week. Wow. 32 is a number. One more than 31 and two more than 30. It is the age Perry Farrell was when Jane's addiction broke up and OJ's number on the bills. It's how old Johnny Depp was in Dead Man. The total number of pieces in chess and the number of black squares on the board. It's how old my mom was when she had me. 32 is how old Kerouac was when he composed some of the Dharma, and when Woody Allen played Jimmy Bond in Casino Royale. It's how old Dre was when he dropped the firm flop and when Jay-Z released the blueprint. It's the age when Val Kilmer played Jim Morrison and Bukowski was still a letter carrier. 32 is the atomic number for germanium, and it's the temperature at which water freezes and melts. It's Sandy Koufax's number. 
and Bill Walton's and Kevin McHale's. And it's Magic Johnson's number two. It's how old Miles Davis was when he recorded Porgy and Bess, one of his favorite albums. The 32nd line of Suck My Kiss, is that still anything that you want me to? 32 is when Scorsese directed Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and when Johnny Cash first recorded the words, Call him drunk in Ira Hayes, he won't answer anymore. It's when Barry Obama joined the law firm of Davis, Minor, Barnhill, and Gallant. It's how old Britta from Community is. And how old Lou Reed was when he released two albums, Rock and Roll Animal and Sally Can't Dance. 32 is 20 years older than Stevie Wonder when he recorded Live, the 12-year-old genius. It's, the num it's the, half the number of positions in the Kama Sutra, the number of ounces in my high-life bottle, the number of piano sonatas completed by Beethoven. 32 is how old I turned on Monday. 32 is one year younger than Jesus when he was crucified, and it is five years older than Jim Morrison, and Janice, and Jimmy, and Kurt Cobain, Robert Johnson, Freaky Ta, Amy Winehouse, Brian Jones, and Jean-Michel Basquiat when they died. And so this was, this was on the occasion of Lit Night, but also your 32nd birthday. Do you want to talk a little bit about... This poem, my, my favorite part of this is when you refer to um, being a year younger than Christ was when he died. Uh, yeah. Um, where, where is it here? Yeah, 32 is one year younger than Jesus when he was crucified, and five years older than Jim Morrison and Janice and Jimmy and Kurt Cobain. Um, so uh, do you want to talk a little bit about where this comes from? Well, I, uh, I was getting to a point where I just thought that, you know, life is going on, you know, and, and I don't want to be a member of the 27 Club, but there's all these people who <clears throat> had already made a mark. They'd already done stuff. And I'm 32. I'm five years older than these guys, you know. I don't want to shoot my face off like Kurt, and I don't want to die of alcohol poisoning and heroin like Amy Winehouse. I don't want to die of misadventure or drug abuse or any of these things. I don't want to get shot. <gasps> None of these things are things that I wanted. But these are also people who have done things. And then I guess the, the whole idea of, of saying that I was a year younger than Christ, not to put me, you know, in the, in the realm of, you know, I'm not a messianic figure, but, you know, I still had time. And it was one of those things where it was like, I still had time to do something, you know, and here I'm, I'm going to be turning 36 in a couple months. And, you know, I, I don't know if I've made an impact in the sort of, you know, grand scheme of things, you know, in a Homeric epic sort of way. But I do know that, you know, I teach and I still get emails from old students and I still get Snapchats from at least one of them. And every once in a while, I, I know that I've done something so that my time has not been wasted. I think that's a sentiment we can all kind of, we all can all relate to in one way or another, the um, kind of existential dread that you haven't made your mark yet. Yeah, and, and I, you know, we're in an advantageous sort of situation here where, you know, and, and I know the three of us, uh, Wes, Matt, and uh, myself, we're in it now, but I know that the other, um, the other folks listening and the other folks who are participating, they're going to start endeavoring on that 
that journey where, you know, once you start teaching, once you start doing something like that, or once you even start joining the workforce or anything like that, you know, it's, it, it, it's not a lot. My sister sent me a, a, a screenshot. You know, she teaches fifth grade, and she she got an email from a kid who's now a junior, who's graduating high school as a junior, saying, you put me on this trajectory of life because you used to buy me books when I was 10, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it could be as little as, as just paying a kindness. It could be as grand as writing poems and getting them published. It could be something as little as, as not letting your students get away with shit when, when they're really, like, you know, slacking off. Putting people onto a trajectory is, is tricky, but it's also something that, that we're all kind of set up to do. Well, and then, I, I mean, that kind, of, that kind of spirit is important, I know, to you and, and, and to me. I mean, my mother, my mother was an educator, and, and so is yours, right? I mean, this is a spirit yeah, that yeah. She, yeah, for, for 25 years, I was her first kindergarten class. Before that, she, she, taught, uh, she taught first grade. And those are all kids, literally, that would, when Facebook started becoming a thing, they sought her out. Mm-hmm. When she died, her, her funeral had students that, names of people who were there that I have not heard in over 20 years, early 90s. These are kids that had her when they were seven yeah. and they showed up. And that's, that's like, I was like, you know, my mom never published anything. My mom never, you know, uh, you know, had a hostile takeover at a bank. She never did anything like that. She was a kindergarten teacher. And she still, I mean, she still affected lives to the point where people carve time out of their day. And then every year since, have it's like share on Facebook that they did a random act of kindness because it was in memory of my mother. You know, it's like, that's the kind of level, you know, I don't, I don't need to be Jeff Bezos to touch lives, <laughs> even though I do appreciate prime, you know, I really do love Amazon prime, but it could be something as small as, as making sure that you're growing up and flying. Right. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you know, not to, not to do this, but so proposal, um, is another really powerful poem from uh, Ritual, Ritual De La Predictable and is, in a way, an homage to your mother in, in some moments. Anticipated, anticipated a proposal that happened and a marriage that happened that we were very happy to be a part of um, and be there for that day. So what about, what about that poem? Well, um... You know, let's let, let's take a listen to it real quick, and uh, and we'll come back and and we'll talk about it. Yeah. Okay. This final poem in the chapbook is called "Proposal." <clears throat> Initially, I thought a proposal was an offer of marriage. Officially, it is a plan or suggestion, especially a formal or written one, put forward for consideration or discussion by others. Today, a proposal is a contract with the devil. Today, it's the reason I didn't sleep last night. Today, it's the reason I'm hungover because it dwells at the bottom of a glass of Canadian Club, frozen in an ice cube of secrets, wrapped in a blanket of futility, wearing a vest with a patch on the back that reads, fuck you. (laughs) Tomorrow, 
It is a blank page with a cursor blinking in Morse code, which reads, you're a failure. Tomorrow, it is the reason to type a paragraph, do 20 push-ups, smoke, walk around the pad, smoke, and write another paragraph. But they're shit. They're all shit. Because J.A. Downey buttfucked Jürgen Habermas in Cynthia Wall's book and revealed his ineptitude. Because Ned Ward and Sam Johnson, oh, that pimp saying SJ, they don't mesh well into the concept I set up in my head, which makes the cursor blink in Morris code, you're a failure. Because no matter what, no matter how hard I will it, my mother will never read it. She will never get that bound copy published by ProQuest, edited into a monograph, God willing, by Oxford or Cambridge or, God willing, the University of California Press, and read, and read the dedication. She will also never get to see the result of her son's use of the word's primary meaning, to hear he proposed to a doctor who said yes. So, I mean, proposal in a way is an homage, uh, at least partially an homage to your mother and anticipates um, this was before you were engaged to your now wife, who you had been with at the time for, what, 12 years, 13 years? Oh, man, yeah, something like, something like 13. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, she won't let me forget it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I wrote this poem, I, I wrote it um, when I was in the midst of writing my dissertation proposal, which took rightfully longer than in my opinion it should have, but you know, I had some some uh, I had some personnel changes and stuff like that, so whatever, it's done. I'm almost done drafting the diss, and a lot of the stuff uh, inside the poem uh, is, is it addresses my frustration with getting that, that proposal done, but then, you know, it, this beautiful thing happened where we're at there's video i'm sure that we could probably link to the video of of dr stacy and i you know we got engaged at lit night and and it was one of those beautiful things that it's like none of my family knew about it not a lot of people knew about it and um and it happened at this place that that you and i and a lot of other people had, had built to to make beautiful and and one of the last things in the poem proposal was, you know, my mother's never going to read, uh, you know, see the bound version of my dissertation. She's never going to see that. And God forbid, you know, I actually get it published into a monograph. She's never going to see, you know, that it was published by Oxford, uh, published by Cambridge, or published by, and I say, God willing, University of California, which is a nice little throwback to where I'm from. But she's never going to see that, and she's never going to see the video, or hear the story, or go to the wedding uh, that that resulted from a proposal between me and and Dr. Stacy. Uh, so so yeah, it was. There's also a little bit of that too in this in this chapbook too. There's some bitterness, you know, about you know again time being being the thing. You know, you wake up. As Baudelaire said, you know, you wake up and the drunkenness is, is worn off and, and what you're left with is time. But we got to kind of slow that down. And I think being drunk on poetry kind of helps. It helps us look back as well as look forward. 
but it's also one of those things too where you know without it being sad or without it being you know melodramatic or whatever you want to say there's also some reality to it too because i know for a fact my students who are 17 18 years old i teach high school students college you know but you are teaching you know 20 year olds and you yourself are are you know or for age, you know, and I know for a fact that when you sit behind that computer and I, I, you know, I've seen Snapchats of it from both of you guys where the cursor is blinking at you and it bleeps and it blinks in Morse code, you're a failure because you can't think of anything else to write, you know, and I think that, you know, the writer's block is one thing, but knowing that you have something to say and not being able to articulate it is another. And I think that's also another thing that, that my chapbook ritual uh, addresses is being able to articulate the feeling of, uh, you know, certain emotions or, or certain observations and things like that. <laughs> Just simply being able to put pen to paper, because I still write longhand. You know, I, I'm the only person I know that does that. You know, you, Matt, Amanda, you know, all these people that I respect and stuff, it's like, you know, you'll dictate it into your phone like Pete, where you'll, you'll, you'll write it in your phone and you'll type it up. And I'm the only person I know that, that legit, you know, I have a notebook on the counter when I'm cooking dinner and I'm half drunk and I'm frustrated with the green beans, I will write a poem and I, and I do it in a notebook that I will always be able to come back to and, uh, you know, when the whole brick shit house burns down, you know, and the cloud evaporates, I'm still going to have that stuff. I don't know. What about what about you guys, Mary? And I'm sorry, was it Anthony? Anthony, Anthony, Mary. What about you guys? How do you guys write? Do you guys do you guys write, or 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 even when you do, like, let's say you're even just trying to start drafting a paper for some class that you hate. Do you, you know, I know for a fact that it hits everybody, you know, that, that strike of inspiration. Do you, do you make notes on the backs of old junk mail or do you have a notebook or, or is everything digital? Is it all mediated? You know, it's funny you say that because I, I sat down to write a poem yesterday with just pen and pencil because I was like, or pen and paper. I was like, I want to be able to cross stuff out and it wasn't going anywhere until I switched over to my laptop where I knew I could just... Delete it again or keep it for later and not have to have like a bunch of crap all over the paper. So I think it's interesting that you actually do write all over the place. I try to and it just sometimes it doesn't work for me. I mean, I, sometimes. I just, what about you, Anthony? Uh, I mean, I'm not so much of like into, into writing poetry or uh, short fiction or anything, but most of the, what I do is screenwriting. But with that, it brings like this whole new set of challenges that it, sometimes it just makes me want to blow my brains out uh, because <laughs> like taking because I, I mean, I love what you said about um, being able to articulate the, you know, the thoughts and the feelings and the, the things that we want to say, but we just don't know how. And for me, a lot of my problems stem from the fact that like I'll have such a clear, vivid beautiful image in my head about what I want uh, like a particular scene I'm writing to look like but getting that onto paper and you know trying to describe it, it it's um, it, that's something that I struggle with so and as far as writing by hand like I, I'm always somebody that always prefers because I, I, I 
I think I think faster than I, you know, write. And I don't, of course. I, I don't, I don't think I'm the only one who has the, like, suffers from that problem. But like, for me, um, I, like, just to put it simply, I can type almost at the same speed I can think. So I think that's probably one of the reasons that I prefer that over longhand. Mm-hmm. And, and I buy that. I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not judging you. I don't think that there's anything <laughs> wrong with that. You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think, you know, to each their own and what works, um, if, if it's mechanically mediated, I mean, that if it works, then it works. Mm-hmm. You know, and but but what I see too is is a disconnection that there's a a certain level of yeah being able to record your thoughts as they come. I mean that is a great thing to do. <laughs> but you know what is it what is it that uh, Wordsworth said? You know, poetry stems, and I know that you're not writing poetry, Anthony. You mm-hmm. know, but but you know, but. Poetry stems from in an intense emotion reflected in tranquility, and being able to have that moment to step back is is one of those things that it allows us to be a little bit more reflective, I think. And that's probably just my own philosophy, but I do think that other people see it that way: is, is to be able to take a step back, you know, and and slow down. We are inundated, and I think that we can all agree that that we have news and information beamed into us. We fall asleep with our phones in our laps, and and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I like being in the know, but you know, at what point can we kind of? And I don't want to say unplug because I'm not a dirty hippie, and I don't <laughs> I don't think that it's a bad thing. I don't want to go take long walks in the woods and appreciate, you know a thrush, but I do think that at a certain time that we need to be more connected with our mediums, and I think, too, that that's what was so great about Lit Night, because I, I don't know about you guys, but, and and my wife would attest, you know, a, a lot of the poetry that I did was, it was based off of notes. I would take a note, or I would have this idea, a theme, this kind of a, this concept, where I would write it down. I would, I would, it would be a line or a phrase or something. I remember one of the ones I did was, you know, I feel zooted when I'm in all black jeans and black booted. I remember I wrote that down in my notebook right next to the list of participants so that we had it with us, you know, so that I would, so that when I jumped up with half of a 40 left, I'd be able to say, okay, well, Jaden, you're up next or Olivia, you're on deck. Um, I wrote that, and then I know that when we needed to fill time, I stood there and recited a poem based off of that theme. I felt like Miles Davis, you know. I was, I was, you know, I was going off of a theme and I was improvising, and legitimately not to beat a horse to death or anything, but that's literally the eulogy that I gave for my mother was six sentences. I spoke for five minutes. And that's also how I wrote my and, and, I, and Matt and Wes were there. That's how I wrote my 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 vows to my wife at my wedding. I went out onto the patio of the hotel room and I took down a couple of notes. And that was how I did my my vows. And I'm going to ask the gallery, how did those vows come out? I think they went pretty well. I would say. I, 
think that went well. I mean, she wasn't going to not marry me. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, you know, like, it, but that was the thing is that I was able to take a step back and able to, to feel connected with the medium, with the emotion itself, and let it kind of take over. And I think that's a proposal poem from the chapbook really is just a way of encapsulating that idea it was it's 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 homer it's it's putting homer onto the page Mm -hmm. there's something missing because we are reading it two thousand years later when we would listen to a person around a fire tell it you know i think that it would have had a little bit more impact and i think that that was that's that's where i think a lot of my artistic inspiration comes from is not just my own because it's hard for me i'm disconnected i'm in the i'm in the neck beard of texas right now and it's hard to come up with poetry you know but when i was around all you guys and and we're getting drunk every other night and we're writing poems and we're talking about it it was one of those things where i fed off of I do miss that, but to take it back to the chapbook a little bit here, too, I find it really interesting what you were just talking about. You essentially just kind of summarized your um, epigraphs to the to the chapbook that are listed here. Um, if you go back, I mean, you just you almost quoted Ferris Bueller directly. Um, yeah. In that life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around for a while, you could miss it. So, I mean, could you comment on these four quotes that you have that start off the chapbook for us? Yeah, again, I think that one of the overarching, you know, an overarching theme is, is the concept of time. And, and people, I start with Chaucer in 1368, you know, time flies and no man abides, right? People in the medieval times, right? Not the one from Chicago, but like actually the medieval times, you know? They actually were worried about the the passage of time, mm-hmm. and that and that moves. I think that the newest <laughs> the newest quote is from Ferris Bueller, and the one right before that is "Got to get back in time" from <laughs> Huey Lewis in the news, which is all about time travel mm-hmm. and trying to rewrite the past, or at least writing the past. And and you know, we we're in the words of. Bukowski, you know, it's like, I'm always the star of my own shit. He actually said that. And, and it's like, you know, you can rewrite your past however you want, but time is still passing. We keep looking back for something. And, and I think that the, the way that the world is working today, our society, our American society, and the global society, you can look at it in Europe and Asia and Africa and everywhere, not just the United States. We have a duty to embrace the passage of time, and we have not done it. And, and I think that, that by ignoring the past and its effect on the present and the passage of time, period, point blank, is detrimental. And what I think that my chapbook does, and I have a couple of poems in there, too, that, that it, it addresses memory, the, the way that memory can shift but also memory and, and the passage of time's formal sort of, you know, effect on our present. And I think that um, that, that is yeah. just a, a major theme that, that kind of that goes throughout this, this chapbook. I, uh, so 
this all made me think of a couple things. So I recently received a package from another Red Flag poet back in the day, Tony Vallone, P.A. Summers. It was a card probably a year ago, year and a half ago now. Uh, and he sent me a notebook and a couple fountain pens, and I had never used a fountain pen before, and so I've been trying to... I've been trying to use that in the morning and try to get into that kind of mechanical mechanical creation that you're talking about. But so the aesthetics of your chapbook, and so I think it's important to note that you can no longer buy the first edition. Uh, we do have some second edition copies available through a few stores in Indiana and online. And if you get a chance to look at one of these books um, or pick up one of these books, there are illustrations throughout um, that are... They're all you, correct, AJ? Yeah, I, I did all of them. Um, and so I think that um, the first the first edition that we did, like like we mentioned earlier, we actually assembled this in Pete's basement. And uh, the second edition was much neater and cleaner in that it, it went through the printer that we now use. Um, and we're very proud of the work that we do now. Um, but we were also very proud of that first chapbook that was stapled by hand and a little uneven. And um, But there was something about that aesthetic that I think worked with your book in a way that it would not have worked with any of the later books the Red Flag has done. And I think that your book kind of goes down in history as... Uh, I, I'm not even sure how to describe it, but so you have these illustrations... It's DIY. DI, yeah, 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 for sure. It's, it's DIY. It looked, I designed it. I specifically designed it. The, the cover art is, for the most part, kind of like cut and paste before cut and paste was a thing that you could do digitally. Right. I literally cut and pasted things or I redrew stuff and and then cut them out and put them in the order that I wanted them. They, you know, and, and I, I, it was like clip art, like back in like 1994 when you used to take a computer class. It was, it was, it's, it's, it's not supposed to be shitty. It's supposed to look like it was done yourself and just like those old punk fanzines. And, and those, those kinds of things that like girls and, and sometimes even guys would, would circulate in eighth grade. It was one of those things that you did yourself and it, and it looks, it's, it's not the burn book from, from Mean Girl. You know, it's, it's, I really, really like the Pixies. So I'm going to cut pictures out of every single magazine and I'm going to put them together with my own artwork and I'm going to recopy the, lyrics and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and then you take it down so I took it down to Copy Pro you know, across the street from IUP and I made several copies of it <coughs> so that it looks shitty like and, and, and Pete was 100% you know he was like, dude, like this is out the gate Pete do you want it to look slick and he's like no I want it to look the way that you want it to look and and that's what it was it was this looks like, and I mean this both from the from the cover to the back to all of the images on the inside in the first and in the second edition. They they look like literally if you would have taken one of my notebooks, which 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 I got into doing when I was in like sixth or seventh grade called Scryeries, portmanteau of scrapbook and diary, right? And and if you pick one of those out, you could see twelve year old AJ. You could see that in thirty-four-year-old AJ when when the chapbook came out, and I think that that really speaks. So uh, Red Flag doesn't do eBooks, and I don't know that we ever will. But certainly, this is a book that also relies on the physicality of of the book itself, right? Like this doesn't work as an eBook, and it's not meant to. 
Um, no, I don't think it could. I don't think it could. I think you're right. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a that's a podcast for another time. Uh, yeah. digi- digital text. <laughs> That's Versus, another, yeah. yeah. Uh, Stay tuned for a <laughs> podcast from Red Flag Poetry. Publication history, yeah. Red, Bo- Red Flag Poetry, take uh, one, yeah. Uh, what's, your, what's your favorite poem from the book, AJ? My favorite? Uh, well, in a manner of speaking, it's... Uh, man, you're like asking me which one of my cats are my favorite. You know, Jameson is the boy and he just cuddles with me and as a routine with me, but then the girl cat is just so adorable and she curls up with me and yells at me when I'm on the phone. Like, how do I make a choice? But um, I think word-wise and and stuff like that, I think it might be a draw between, again, there's history behind it, but, but the one to Jewel and other white women, I really love that poem. But I also really, really, I think in a visceral sort of personal way, love doll parts. And what's interesting is they, they kind of sit there right next to each other, only only divided by one of your hand-drawn images in the book itself. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and you also have, I don't know if you want to talk about this really, but you have some inter- an interesting story that surrounds doll parts, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's, let's, let's hear yeah. both of these, let's hear both of these poems and then... Then we'll, give it, then we'll give AJ a chance to tell us a little story about the one. To Jewel and other white women. Draping kisses between shoulder blades of the sure-footed angel in my midst. Kissing away the remiss of this Nordic Swiss miss. A lover longing to discover who makes me coffee and toast every day our souls are entwined. And blows me kisses as I walk out the door gazing through dingy windows of the soul. Whispers rouse me from my sleep, echoing at night, drawing attention to the hollow pillow beside me. Visions, glimpses of you next to me in an empty mirror, causing me to lash out and weep every day since you fled. Fists striking stone walls, searching for you through tear-blurred eyes. Memories of short breaths dying on my neck, speaking your mind through pained eyes, Fingertips that caressed my face like rain, but now point to bleak horizons. A late night mist that settles over life, which hides the hurt you cause and gently rocks me to sleep, only to wake, screaming from the dream that once was. This is a poem called Dull Parts. <laughs> You told me that you needed an abortion and that the baby's father used to hit you. You said you could trust me to keep that and hold it close to my heart because you cared about me. You told me over Newports and Nutella that you had been raped. You said you didn't know who it was but that you woke up cold and cum covered and sore because you believed that I could help. Weeks before, I said on the phone that I wanted to be exclusive, that I wanted you and I to be us. Weeks before, in the tub, while reading Narcissus and Goldman, I I realized you were the one. Fifteen years and 3,000 miles later, caffeine-addled and clear, I froze while driving. Fifteen years later, I had arrived. I ain't the one to be trusted, to be of help, 
I wasn't dressing you in my mind, and I was pawing at your young flesh, touching myself to you until I fell asleep. I was trying to fuck you, drunk on images of you splayed before me. Finally, I understand my collection of broken dolls. You, yes, you, are every girl I have ever met, one after another, a crop of withered and wilted cabbage patch kids. I've watched and cataloged while you've been screwed and tattooed, when I've come over on balmy evenings to clasp your shoulders while you applied cover-up to bruises and came down from a box of Benadryl. Every prick, every eighth, every fifth, every dime, I wrote it down. I wrote it down for 15 years later to read over my collection of broken dolls, to recall my Hasbro harem, heaped in the dim light of the past. I wasn't safe. Or trustworthy. I was a 17-year-old reading Narcissus and Goldman in a steaming tub trying to fuck you. But you fucked me first. So, so yeah. So the story so the story behind Doll I mean, not not behind the origin of Doll Parts, but but you you tried to teach this poem. I well, you know, I gave it up as an option. I I'm sure that if there's any educators out there, they're sick and tired of, of plagiarism. And it's really easy to type in um, Harlem Langston Hughes into Google and then come back with a lot of, you know, analyses that are really easy to, to, to plagiarize, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm sick and tired of that. And so I tried opening it up to other sort of genres. So I just like pick a song, all this stuff. And then I had kids who were taking online reviews of, like, Kendrick Lamar's album, Damn. And, and, <laughs> and like, using deep cuts, like, from page three or page four of Google uh, to turn it in. So, so what I thought was, when I, when I started, and I had talked to a lot of people about this, um, Wes has a book that came out on, um, on Word Dance, um, and Amanda Oaks also has a chapbook that came out, what, within the last year or yep. so, right? Yes, Maybe 18 months. Yeah. The River um, Is Everywhere, on, yes. Yeah, say it again? Uh, the River Is Everywhere by Amanda Oaks, yes. The, uh, the River Is Everywhere by Amanda Oaks uh, yeah. on Red Flag Press, you know? Yeah. And and I, I chose several poems out of both of those because they weren't mine. And I chose two poems. From this chapbook, I, I chose, uh, well, I chose Doll Parts, which turned out to be a bad idea, and then I also chose the one where I was, uh, you know, I was turning into my father, Sunday Morning Coming Down, which I love that poem as well, but um, I was driving back from from a conference in New Jersey, and, and these ideas and these thoughts just really hit me, so when I came <coughs> home a few years ago... I, I uh, wrote that poem, and I read it a couple of times at, at lit night, and Doll Parts was a great one, and it was one of those things where it's like even the title, which comes from a, a song by Hole, um, all these things kind of came together, and it really worked, and it, and it took aspects of my past, memories of my past, and how they formulated me as a human being today and all that, but what I did was I assigned it as an option. Two of my poems versus like four or five of these others, and they're great poems from Amanda and from Wes, and almost no one 
chose anything from me. Only one student chose doll parts. And I don't think that they were the culprit behind this, but as I may have mentioned before, and if not, I am teaching at a community college, which they have me in a high school or high schools uh, teaching college credit in a high school. And in so doing, there's a lot of high school age people that there's no real academic freedom as far as a lot of you know, like things that are weird, like even the textbook that the, the community college offers, there's a few stories in there which are cultivated by the staff that are anthologized heavily throughout a lot of different publications. People are like, oh, that's not, that's not good. Oh, oh no, no, no. It says dirty words or it's about bad things. So mm-hmm. as an option, all parts was a poem. Only one person chose it. But according to the principals and the superintendents of a couple of high schools that I worked at, it was uh, forced upon them that it was inappropriate that their professor made them read it. Um, you know, like all these kinds of things that were, it's like, if you even just looked at the assignment sheet, it's like that's not even what it was. You know, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And But there was already things going on in these schools with other mm-hmm. professors. I don't think that they liked the openness of the college experience. And I don't think that I'm sugarcoating anything that I did. I realized I shouldn't have done doll parts. I mean, you guys heard it. It's, it's, it's probably, un, you know, unnecessary that a 17-year-old should read it. However, we were in a college class. And there are things that I feel in the drafting of it would speak to people who were 17 or 18 because that's some of the scenes in that are most of the scenes in that are from when I was 17 and 18 and I was going through a lot of stuff with the girls that I found attractive or the girls that I were dating or anything like that. It was just like, this is real to me. This is, this is, this is what dating when you're 17 is like, but maybe that's what dating when I was 17 was like. I was also told that Tarrant County, Texas, which is where, you know, Fort Worth sits, is is more conservative than Orange County, California, you know. So it's it was just, you know, Jesus and the Republican gods and all that stuff were kind of stacked there. That's the story. It was just, you know, I got I got uh, I got my wee wee slapped because I taught a poem that I thought I didn't even teach it. I gave an option. To read and, 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 and to interpret a poem that I thought would speak to them. And honestly, every single other poem that I picked out of uh, Amanda's uh, chapbook and out of Wes's chapbook, they all kind of spoke to each other. There was a conversation going on there. It was about looking back and looking forward. It was about memory and the present. It was about change and, and uh, you know, going all over again. But that stuff doesn't matter. It's it's the sense of propriety. It's the optics of being clean. And I honestly, you know, if you want someone to teach an English class without unnerving people, then maybe you're in the wrong racket. And I, I remember that um, the irony of this came, too, that it was during band's, Band Books Week that you had this conversation with uh, some of the people that you were working with. And um, yeah. Uh, and it reminds me too of not that long ago there was a, there was an article 
It came out about a high school teacher in an AP English class full of seniors who was fired for not teaching and not even giving us reading. Uh, there was a Ginsburg poem called Yes Master, and it's a it's a it's a BDSM, and it's a it's a very sexually graphic poem um, about you know uh, about sex and about kind of like niche sex, and um, the students themselves found it and approached the teacher and asked him to help them understand it like how how this was poetic because it seemed it seemed different from other things that Ginsburg was doing and um he engaged with them and and was fired for it uh so i think that these conversations are important to have and that you know that stories like yours and um poems like yours remind us that poetry though maybe ignored more often than not still is powerful enough that people choose to hide it or to it's, censor it it it's, still spurs controversy it does very, and very easily it seems yeah. and and i don't think anything valuable avoids controversies so well and and you know also too then it also shines a light on personal not just personal responsibility that's not really where i'm trying to go with that but like ownership of your own ideas the students found that ginsburg poem right yeah um <clears throat> No one chose, one person chose my poem, you know, and, um, you know, it, it, it would be a problem if it was foisted upon somebody. It would be a problem if, if, if you have to read it and you have to read it the way that I'm telling you to read it and all that kind of stuff, or if you have an agenda. But this is exploratory. There's something not erotic, but there's something very, you know, very sensual about reading poetry and reading literature and 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 to have an option is one thing being forced into something is another obviously that's exactly what the Ginsburg poem is actually really about but what what really bothers me about the state of education and the state of our own society at the moment is when asked point blank about decisions made or what the assignment is or, you know, objective fact is that they get twisted so much that, you know, persons in the right become persons in the wrong and that there's no personal culpability on the part of someone who chose it or who didn't choose it. But it's easier to say, you know, a half-truth or, or, or a flat-out falsehood than it is to own your decisions. And I think that that, too, is another thing that we should all keep into perspective as well, you know. Um, you know, artistic uh, license notwithstanding and, uh, you know, academic freedom notwithstanding. But, but taking ownership of not just your own work but your own decisions is something that we are lacking. Well, I think we'll, we'll call it there. But uh, we'll remind you that AJ's... Uh, the second edition of AJ's chapbook, Red Flag's first chapbook, Ritual Daylo Predictable, is still available on our website and in several local Indiana stores if you can find your way here. Um, but we'd like to thank you, AJ, for being here. It was my pleasure. And uh, thank you, Matt, Anthony, and Mary. And thanks, me, too. And Thank you, Wes. <laughs> uh, and thanks, Peter, who couldn't be here but was always with us in spirit. Um, but wonderful conversation, and check us out next time.